Have you ever volunteered to man a dunk tank? You know, those tanks at fairs and fundraisers, the, the potential victim sits on this uh, precarious little shelf uh, over the tank of cold water. And uh, all sorts of people come by and they pay money for the chance to throw balls, to trip the lever and send you plunging into the drink. And uh, I've never had the pleasure of being that wet guy, but um, a couple of my kids have volunteered to uh, play victim for a, a fundraising game similar to that. And they didn't seem to mind. Maybe it was a hot day. But, um, but it's got to feel pretty precarious if, if you're up there on that little ledge and uh, you're at everyone's mercy and they're just trying to send you for a fall. I'll tell you, though, I felt like that in my Christian life. Like God had saved me out of the water, out of his anger, his displeasure, his judgment, his wrath, and, and perched me up safe on a little ledge. And uh, there have been times, though, when it still felt precarious up there. Because all kinds of people and, and situations and, and feelings and doubts were, were coming along trying to knock me off and make me fall back into God's displeasure again. Have you ever felt like that? Unsure, maybe, of, I'm getting some nods and, and one, yeah. <laughs> um, maybe unsure of, of whether you might make a wrong move and fall back into God's displeasure or God's condemnation. In our passage, Paul mentions a bunch of possible situations which could feel or could make us fear that we would fall. He mentions in verse 35, trouble and hardship and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword. And then in verse 37, he adds death and life and angels, demons, the present, the future, other powers, heights, depths, anything else in all creation. And, and evidently, those were a bunch of things that, that came to Paul's mind that, that people back then might worry about, that, that they could chuck balls at you, so to speak, to, to knock you down and to plunge you again into God's displeasure and anger. And I wonder what we could add to the list today. For sure, trouble and hardship still relate for some of us. We, we, we go through difficulty, maybe a, a painful or, or a frightening health situation. Um, maybe a financial crisis, maybe a, a huge stress at, at work or at home. And, and especially if it drags on and on, we, we begin to think, how can God let this happen to me? Does God see what I'm going through down here? Doesn't God care about what I'm facing? And maybe as we're dealing with, with all this, we, we flip through the channels and, and we come across one of those TV preachers who promises us that God wants us to prosper. That if we really have faith, we can claim God's blessing, claim health, claim riches. Or, or maybe we know a fellow Christian who believes this sort of theology and they suggest to us that there must be something wrong with our faith or there must be sin in our life if we're going through all this, because otherwise God wouldn't let that sort of thing happen. And we wonder, and so our trouble and our hardship maybe send us down into the tank. Or maybe it's that we're stuck in a sinful pattern. 
Uh, we, we've tried hard to get out of it, but we feel like a car stuck in a snowbank or stuck on a muddy road that we're just spinning our wheels. We try to move forward. We try to change, but no matter how hard we try, we just seem to fall back into that thing. And we've told God so many times that we're sorry and we'll try not to do it again, but so many times we have done it again. And we feel like a fraud. We feel like we can't even apologize to God anymore because we won't really mean it. Or maybe it's another person who's telling us that we're not good enough, that we don't measure up. Maybe a spouse, maybe a parent, maybe an in-law. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his classic book, Life Together, uh, warns church leaders and other so-called mature Christians that we should be careful lest we do this to other people. He writes, This applies in a special way to the complaints often heard from pastors and zealous members about their congregations. A pastor should not complain about his congregation, certainly never to other people, but also not to God. A congregation has not been entrusted to him in order that he should become its accuser before God and men. Let him guard against ever becoming an accuser of the congregation before God. But people do this. They, they do this to us, don't they? They become our accusers. My, my wife Anne and I have had to learn not to do this to each other in our marriage. There are certain faults that each of us has. Um, that get on each other's nerves. And uh, one of mine is sometimes only half listening to what Anne says. And then when she gets done saying, "Uh uh-huh, okay. (laughs) And and then later I have no idea what I agreed to. (laughs) And and Anne has had to learn in her frustration with me, in her valid frustration, to express that frustration with my actions without becoming an accuser of me as a person. Because, right, it's easy when we're frustrated with people to to get into rehearsing their faults and all of their sinful tendencies, maybe with our words, at least with our thoughts. And, And if we're not careful, what do we wind up doing? We wind up throwing balls at them, knocking them down off the shelf, back into the water of them feeling God's accusations and condemnation. Instead of giving them the same grace that God has given us and that God has given them as well. Our words have huge power over others. And and so I have to remember when I get frustrated with Anne that God has given Anne huge grace. And God has given me huge grace too. And how dare I turn around and act like she's still condemned, still under God's displeasure. So I'm learning to see her. She's learning to see me through the same eyes of grace that God sees us through. Otherwise, we're disagreeing with God and finding ourselves accusing someone whom God has already acquitted. But people do this to us, don't they? They question our spirituality. They judge our motives. They point out our faults. And and sometimes their accusations stick because the truth is our spirituality is sometimes questionable. (laughs) And, And so in their accusations, or rather if their accusations get to us, we may forget how God sees us. And their accusations may plunge us down into that dunk tank. 
But it's not only specific people who accuse us, it's, it's also society as a whole, right? Uh, because society's constantly telling us what a successful life should look like. Ann and I call it the success narrative. And it, it goes like this. Our kids are supposed to do great in school. As, as they go along toward their high school years, they're supposed to take AP courses and get good grades. They're supposed to play at least two varsity sports, or if not, to play a musical instrument really well or play lead in the school play. They aren't supposed to get in trouble with the law. They aren't supposed to do drugs. They better not get pregnant or get anyone pregnant. They're supposed to get into several colleges of their choice and graduate, ideally, with honors. Then they're supposed to land a lucrative job so they can move away from home, marry an attractive, well-balanced person, start a family of their own, attend church as a family, and start the process all over again. Right? But what if we fail to live out that narrative? What if we or our children do run into trouble with the law? Or there's an unplanned pregnancy? Or a broken marriage? Or a DUI? Or an addiction? What if there's clinical depression or suicide? What if that lucrative job doesn't materialize? And we're ashamed and, and we're embarrassed. What are we then? Have, have we failed as a Christian? D does God love us any less? Has the dunk tank lever been tripped and we've been plunged back again into God's angry rejection or at least his cool displeasure so that he gives us the silent treatment for a while? And what about, one more thing, what about if the Christian life just doesn't seem to work for us? What if when we pray to God or we read God's word, we, we just don't feel anything? God seems like just a far-off idea. And we struggle through life with no spiritual power, with no spiritual joy, with no warm, fuzzy feelings of God's love. Maybe prayer seems empty. Maybe God's word seems dry and boring. Or, or we're full of doubt. What then? Have we fallen down into the tank? Has God given up on us and turned his back on us? There are a lot of ways to fall from the height of salvation back into the place of feeling God's displeasure and judgment. Both the ways that Paul mentioned, a lot uh, more that I just mentioned, and some others that you could probably come up with as well. Well, Paul addresses all of this in today's passage. And he responds to it with good news. In fact, for those of us who have placed our faith in, in Jesus Christ and are entrusting our life to Christ, following him, Paul tells us that we can come down. We can come down from our perch suspended above that tank and enjoy a place of safety and security enfolded in the arms, as we saw a couple weeks ago, of our Abba Father who loves us. And wants us to enjoy a secure seat at his supper table. Let's take a look at what Paul has to say about this. First, he addresses the, the guilt and the shame and the accusations that we may feel or face. And Paul reminds us 
that God isn't the one who put us up there on that precarious shelf. We put ourselves up there. Or maybe we grew up in a church environment which made us feel we belonged up there. But that was never God's idea. No, what does Paul say in verse 31? He says, if our trust is in Jesus Christ, then God is for us, not against us. And how for us is God? God is so for us, Paul says, that he gave us his own son. And here Paul is reminding us, alluding to a story from the Old Testament, the story of Abraham. Do you remember that story back in the Old Testament? It goes like this. One time, God asked Abraham, or rather he tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, here I am, said Abraham. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. He had cut, or when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy Go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but but where is the lamb? For the burnt offering. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb, my son, for the burnt offering. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. Then he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Can you imagine, can you imagine what Abraham felt in deciding to give up his son? The the heart-wrenching pain, the, the sacrifice. Can you imagine the relief that he felt when the angel told him that God would never actually require that of him or anyone else? It's the same relief that any parent feels who has sent their child off to war when that child comes home safe and sound. But it's a relief that God himself willingly chose to forfeit. Unlike Abraham, God did not spare his own son. 
God allowed his son to make the ultimate sacrifice for you and for me. Why? Because God is for us, so for us. So for us that he'd give up his only son for our sake, so he could have us back. And Paul asks, if God is that for us that he'd give up his own son, what else could he possibly withhold that would be for our good? If God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things, Paul asks. And then Paul adds, if God is for us, the ruler over the universe, the wisest, most powerful being of all, then who else could be against us? Well, plenty of people could be against us, but what right do they have to tell us what we're worth? And what chance do they have of telling God how he should treat us? God has already shown us that he's willing to go to bat for us, tooth and nail. And so he didn't even spare his own son in his desire to draw us close and to have us in his family. And that means that nothing else is going to be able to get us away from him. And so if you're up on that shelf over the dunk tank, it's not because God wants you up there. No, he invites you to come down. Paul reinforces this in verses 33 to 34. He says, no one can accuse us and no one can condemn us. For God has justified us. And you might remember that Paul explained what justification is all about back when we were looking at Romans 3 and 4. He explained that that in the heavenly court, God, the judge, has slammed down the gavel and decreed the punishment has already been paid. The sentence has already been served on behalf of the accused. And if the judge of the universe has declared now that things are right between God and and us, that nothing else is needed, that the record is clear. If the judge of the universe has declared this, who could possibly say anything different? So there's no point in sitting up there on the shelf over the dunk tank because we have been justified. God has declared that things are right between him and us. When this seeps into our hearts, when we enjoy this kind of security, One thing we find is that we don't have to go around defending ourselves anymore to other people. Because um, what tends to motivate us to defend ourselves? Well, someone accuses us of something and and we say, no, I didn't. (laughs) And we want to prove our innocence. We, We want to set the record straight. But why do we want to do that? Well, often it's because we don't feel really secure. It hasn't fully sunk in that God has declared us righteous. Really, God has. And and so we're still trying to earn and to protect and to defend our own righteousness instead. Um, So, for example, let me tell you how practical this gets. (laughs) A few months ago, Anne was complaining that, that everyone in the family leaves the kitchen cabinet doors open, and she's got to close them. She's the only one who does. And um, 
So what do I say? I say, well, you mean the kids. I don't think I leave them open. And she says, yes, you too. <laughs> and, and so I want to get all defensive, right? <laughs> well, well, how do you know? You haven't seen all the times I close them. <laughs> so, so now what am I doing? And instead of sympathizing with my wife and her frustration, instead of helping her to feel understood and, and supporting her in her bid to keep the, the, family, uh, the kitchen tidy, instead of that, I'm arguing with her. I'm defending my cabinet door closing righteousness. I'm insisting I'm not the kind of person who leaves cabinet doors open. I'm better than that. And so now it's all about me. It's about my insecure need to defend my record, which is silly because God has already justified me. He set the record straight and told me who I really am. I'm righteous. I'm a son of God. I'm loved. Who cares if I leave a few cabinet doors open? <laughs> well, Anne does. <laughs> but it doesn't affect my righteousness. And so I should be able to say sorry to Anne, and I should be able to say I'll try harder, and then uh, move on in security, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, well, lest we still have any doubts of, of how much God loves us and how secure we are in his love, Paul adds in verse 34 that not only is the judge of the universe on our side declaring us righteous, but Jesus Christ, who died for us, has been seated by God at his right hand to rule over all, and Jesus is also interceding for us on our behalf. In 2008, before I came to CBC, I worked for a contractor. I think I've told this story before, but it, it makes the point well, so I'll tell it again. One, one of the jobs that we had one week was to do landscaping for a mansion. And this large, stately home sat on a hill at the end of a long drive overlooking several acres of sprawling grounds. It was the biggest house in the neighborhood, owned by a lawyer. Um, and it took four of us almost a week to remove all the leaves from the lawn. Um, it, it was kind of intimidating. Four guys making $11 an hour, dressed in grubby clothes, doing yard work for this massive home. But it just so happened that our boss's sister and brother-in-law lived in that home. We were intimidated, but our boss, he'd walk right up to the front door and give the lady of the house a hug. <laughs> More than that, he'd go in and make us coffee in her kitchen and offer to have her order pizza for us. We had an intercessor. We had someone who knew the owner personally, who was, in fact, family to them. And he could ask for favors. He could gain us access. He could open doors that we couldn't or we were too intimidated to try by ourselves. And that's exactly what Christ does for us. Not that we need it, because God already loves us so much that he did not spare his son. He's justified us in court. He's declared us right with himself. He's adopted us into his family as his own children. He's already expressed his willingness to give us everything we need that is in fact good for us. But if it makes you feel any better, Paul says, remember Jesus is also at God's side interceding for you all the time. And so you're good. You are covered. 
there's no need for you to sit up on that shelf over that dunk tank. Well, second, Paul moves on from, from assuring us that guilt and accusation can't send us back into the tank. And he tackles the subject of suffering and, and hard times, which may also make us question God's care for us. In verses 35 to 39, he lists all the things we may go through even though we're God's beloved children. We may still suffer trouble. Maybe we will face hardship. Maybe we f- will face persecution or, or hunger from famine or become so poor or face such a situation that we don't even have clothes on our back. Maybe we'll face danger or, or perish in war or persecution. Any of those things can happen. In fact, almost all of them did happen to Paul. Bad stuff happens, Paul says. Get used to it. Expect it. Don't be surprised. It doesn't mean God doesn't love you. And this may sound glib or or trite, but remember, Paul says this from the trenches of, of having suffered this kind of stuff. Not from a safe ivory tower. Paul, Paul's been there. And, and the thing is, Paul realizes, God never promises to shelter us from all trouble. For, for God's own good reasons, God often does not choose to spare his children. And, and trying to explain all the reasons why would be a whole nother series of sermons. A, a lot of it has to do with, with God building our character teaching us perseverance and and transforming our selfishness into love so that we grow up as as God's children to be more like him so that one day we'll be fit to rule with him in the new creation. But that doesn't explain it all, I I realize. And and Paul doesn't explain it either. He just says it's going to happen. So here Paul's point here as a, a guy who's lived this, who's experienced it firsthand, If you sign up with Jesus to have an easy life, free from trouble, then you don't want Jesus. You should go find a different kind of Savior. Because Paul acknowledges that in this life, we may experience our share of trouble. Among other reasons, because the way of Jesus is unpopular and countercultural. When the tectonic plates of of the kingdom of God and the new creation that Jesus came to bring are pressing in on this world, they collide with the tectonic plates of the world organized apart from God. And when these plates collide, guess what happens? Friction, trouble, tribulation, and we may be right in the middle of it. But that in no way means, Paul says, that God doesn't love us. No, far from it. God has the best possible future in store for us, Paul says. Verse 37. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. This is where we cue the Queen's song and we start singing, we are the champions. Because in all of our struggle and our suffering, we can celebrate the fact that in the end, we come out on top. In the end, we inherit the whole estate. In the end, we receive glory. And then we may look back and maybe we'll be able to see that, in fact, our loving Father was working all of those troubles for our ultimate good. I don't know how we'll be able to see it. But, but in the meantime, which is where Paul is, we may be down a goal or two in the second or third period. But don't think, Paul says, that those troubles separate you from God's love. 
or suggest that he cares for you any less. No, far from it. So hang in there. See the big picture. Remember how the story ends. The momentum is going to change, Paul says. Wait for it. Keep waiting. Keep your eyes on the prize. We are going to be the champions in the end. And then the trouble will pass away and we will enjoy all God's good things with him forever and ever. And so if you're up on the shelf over the dunk tank and you think you're going to fall because things are tough and things are not going your way and you're doubting God's love because it seems God has forgotten you, then Paul is inviting you to come down. Things may be tough for you, Paul says, like they have been for me. But God has not forgotten us. No, God loves us just the same. And none of those things, none of those troubles can separate us from that love. So let's end with verses 38 and 39 where Paul ends. For I am convinced, he says, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.